listening to Otra Por Favor. Otra Por Favor. Episode number 19. It's the continuation of episode uh, 18, where we talk with uh, Jessica Smith, the attorney that represented uh, Luis Grijalba. We're going to talk more about her career and also her feeling towards working for DACA, representing DACA recipients. Yes, stay tuned and listen to the episode. Let us know what you think. Thank you. Adios. I want to say pro-immigrant people, but I don't think that reform should be something that you have to be so leftist mm -hmm. or pro-immigrant, you know? Same. I mean, I think it's common sense. You're not going to keep growing. I mean, you know, have 13 million people undocumented, have people on DACA for now we're going on 10 years, right? I mean, are we going to let everyone that was a DACA student become like a senior citizen and just still be renewing DACA? I mean, that's what it seems like, because I don't think Obama did not intend for it to be a 10-year program. Right. That's good that you said that, because what do you what do you think about what needs to be done for, for DACA to actually, for that issue to get fixed? Well, I think that, I mean, I don't know if a lot of people really understand it. And I realized that with the case, with the Olympian case, with Luis's mm -hmm. case, because I really thought that even reporters and we're talking national publications and, you know, obviously those that are more political news were, were better. But I even had certain sports reporters like national and other reporters call me and sometimes ask questions that indicated they really didn't understand that much about it. Right. And the restrictions and, and what it was and why it had uh, been, you know, been pushed forward and why it had gone on now so long, much less all the setbacks, you know, litigation wise. So I think that one thing is, and one thing I was really happy about with Luis, Luis Grijalva's case, Luis's case is that I think we got the attention of some people that would never open an article about DACA otherwise that, you know, don't have a strong interest or alignment with immigrant communities, not that they're necessarily anti-immigrant. I'm not saying that, but a lot of athletes, a lot of members of the running community, which is a big deal. And all of a sudden they're, you know, like, just like I told you about the employers that were U S citizens, you know, with native born for many generations, that would come into my office and be like, what do you mean? I can't like, you must be wrong. You know, that type of thing, the same kind of thing. I mean, I think there was some outrage that Luis was almost had held back from that opportunity, but there's what 600, how many people on DACA now? 600,000 or 800,000 is the uh, most current. Like 800, 800,000. Yeah. Ever since the new applications. Yeah. So 800,000 since then. And so there's a lot of, you know, Luis's and then the, you know, the other part of it is that how many people, what I was telling one of the reporters is that really there's also the stories like Luis's that never get told because I'll have these conversations. Okay. I got accepted. I'm a student at, I'm, you know, Fresno state. A lot of my DACA students are Fresno state students. Um, I got accepted to this conference that's in France or this competition and it's three weeks away. Okay. So even if I'm trying to paint the best picture I can, you know, discount whatever uh, fees I can do as much as I can, you know, given the time frame, because I also have to throw other things aside, you know, that are also deadlines or maybe stay up all night for something else. Like this woman that was going to be removed that we just got the stop on, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so then usually most people close the door on themselves and say, so you're saying that three weeks is usually not done for this kind of thing. Right. And I'll say, right, you know, but we can try. And it's like, I can't, because if I don't know in a week, then I lose my hotel deposit. And then I'm afraid the program's going to be upset with me if they, pay. you know what I mean? There's all these variables. Like right. these are a lot of people are professionals, are aspiring professionals. And they also, you know, because maybe the coordinators don't understand DACA, 
they don't want to compromise another opportunity if they've said you can go and then it's last minute. Oh, guess what? My permit didn't come through. Uh Well, common sense would say he would know that before and Uh you're being inconsiderate of the program and other people. But we all know that this is just the limbo that people have been subjected to, which really many of them will just say, you know what? I think I'm going to sit this one out and sitting that out for 10 years, professional opportunities. I mean, that are short time frame is like, is crippling. Right. And it's holding people back. And like personally for me, I've been blessed to be in a job that, you know, it's my, my boss understands that concept of DACA ever since I first came in. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that didn't have this, you know, like opportunity that I have right now, or even, Mm -hmm. even like you said, right. Just, you mentioned something that's important, how a lot of us have to sit down. We've been sitting down for 10 years plus, because even before that we were immigrants, like without papers. Yeah. And now we're just like, man. But there's just kind of a fear of like, you know, closing the doors that have opened too, right? Even if it's not that maybe you think, okay, I got this opportunity to go somewhere out of the country to do something and maybe people understand, but maybe they won't. And maybe if I don't find out to the last minute that it's not approved, then people are going to think that I'm not taking them seriously. Right. right? I think there's a lot of those thoughts I've seen with the students. Um, I just recorded, it should come out next Friday, a version of my podcast. I think it's episode eight. I haven't done as many as you guys. I'm not as far as long, (laughs) but um, there's a young man named Alex Avalos. He's now a permanent resident. He was my client. Um, when I was the director of something called the new American legal clinic that was at the law school. And he had come to me, he was a DACA student who had qualified when he was at community college for a kind of an academic Olympics. Almost. It was um, something called food for thought and had elements of agriculture. He worked at this large agricultural um, kind of, it's like a steakhouse and ranch, but they also do things like that out near where he and his family live. But he also did business stuff for them. But he won this competition within California that was um, partly, I think he went to UC Davis for it from the Central Valley and he won something there. And it was partly agricultural, but it was kind of engineering and like all these critical thinking. So he got an all expense thing to Europe to compete at the next level. But of course it was like Luis's time frame, and we had an even crazier story and he tells it on the podcast, you know, now that he's a permanent resident, we're like, okay, you know, cause he, he was, um, he got it through a family member, not through, obviously a lot of people think you can get it through DACA, but you can't. But um, we, he ended up not getting the physical permit in time, deciding to depart. My plan was to FedEx it to him. Um, His family was going to bring it to me. But his family lives in a rural area and there was some kind of an issue with the address. So we were all freaking out. He was in Europe longer, but then he started to run out of money. And he and so then that's scary. He made a decision. He went to the border and he filed. An, yeah. So people think Luis's parole was my most traumatic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it might have been the most newsworthy, but mm-hmm. I've some, and we got we got Alex back in. They weren't that's happy cool. about it, but they, they admitted him with an emergency application at the border, you know, for parole because they could they could see. But he tells the story on the podcast and I think it's pretty cool, too. So maybe some of your listeners would be interested. Well, yeah, well, for sure have to yeah go listen what's the what's the name of the podcast so they can it's, actually it's, i am attorney jessica okay. and it's migration and human rights for all so i started this in april um it was around my birthday that the first actually the first episode launched on my birthday and so i have different immigration lawyers on i mean i try to bring on people that are really dedicated and kind of cool in different ways i've also had an accredited rep that's at an organization in fresno and he was at, he was DACA, you know, first, and then he ended up through marriage getting his, his green card. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, been interesting and, and it's been cool to get to highlight some of these stories, um, especially those like uh, Luis, I think is going to come on eventually too. Um, once he gets settled from all his, you know, Olympic glory. <laughs> once he gets settled from the sponsorship from hookah. Yeah. My daughter was saying, so my daughter went with me to Phoenix and she's uh She's 16. She was doing an online summer program. She said, mom, it's so weird. You bought those running shoes hookah about a year ago. I didn't even know of them. And then I heard something and I bought them. And now it's just 
weird to think that here I'm now representing one of their stars. <laughs> stars. <laughs> there was something yeah. there going on in the there back end that you didn't know, right? Um, I know. <laughs> maybe like something in my mind, yeah. you know, was leading <laughs> towards it. Yeah. It's crazy. So. Um, if you think about it, like, I wonder how many really, uh, um, how many people have gone through something like that, you know, like with that guy and like going out of the country and then trying to come back. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's not probably a lot of them out there, but I could be wrong. You know, it was funny because some of the reporters were asking me, you know, after we got the permit, they said, are you worried about, you know, Luis getting back in? I'm like, no. And they said, um, you know, this, so this must have been the most dramatic, like, DACA pro. I'm like, no, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I told Alex, he died laughing because he knew exactly. He was literally texting me from the border, you know, and like I was telling him what to say. And I'm like, just keep insisting. I think they I think they had to let him in, but I'm not. But, but they could have made him wait a lot longer and go through a lot more. I don't know if they I don't want to say they had to because I don't want anyone. Right? Everybody. Is like right there asking yeah. them, <laughs> and it's just like like say when it comes up to that guy, and I, I personally think this could happen. Well, now that whole infrastructure bill that happened, that there's some stuff in the budgetary committee that's gonna be yeah, reconciled. I know it never amounts. It's to. like I don't know what's what's gonna happen there. Um, but I for know, me, like, yeah, like if if you were to ask me, Ricardo, give me a a, res, a reasonable way of you know legalize start legalization for people that you already know, like. How about we start with the people that they already have on file? Because when you have someone's name on your in records, it's a double-edged sword because you already know who they are. Yeah. But like a, what happened a couple of weeks ago, we had a Texas federal attorney, I mean, a judge pretty much named parts of DACA illegal or whatnot. Yeah. Then we run a case to like that program could be over similar to what happened last year when it was fought in the Supreme court. So it can be a, it was something where they already know who we are so they can continue to renew the permit or once this stops forever, then ICE can come and get the people that they already know are here. So yeah. the best way for me is like, why not? Since they're already here, you already know they're paying taxes. You already know they're contributing. Because you see it, they are, every two years they come and they do fingerprint records. You just give them the green card, or I mean, have them pay an extra thousand dollars as a fee yeah. for for forgiveness fee or whatever. So, because as time's gonna go on, time's gonna go on, and then like you said earlier, another ten years, and they're gonna be we're gonna be in the limbo another ten years, and so many opportunities we have to sit on every year. Like so many stuff that we want to do, so many even investing in the stock market, we can't do that because we don't have a residency or a, or a citizenship. So it it holds us back. Like personally, for me, is I want to do more, but then I don't want to plan ahead and get in too much because what if something? You, there's another smarter, racist, conservative president that comes in the future and takes it away completely forever. I so, mean, I can't believe that Judge Hannon is dedicating his legal career. I mean, if, I mean, to ruining people's lives, basically. Right. I mean, that's just pathetic. I mean, that's like the, to me, it's just so, I I don't understand, you know, I really don't. I mean, I can understand debates about being fiscally conservative or, you know, even that maybe not all immigration should, should happen or is, you know, is good. But I mean, to say that young people that were brought here young in almost all cases um, you know, that have progressed a lot, like that they don't deserve a chance to apply for something. I mean, we're not saying just get it. It could be earned again over years. I mean, that's usually what they do, right? Mm-hmm. Is something right. that's incremental, you know, because they want to be sure that people maintain a good history. And also there could be a multi-layered process that could make the government a lot of money, you know, and I'm sure people would hopefully it wouldn't be so expensive that not anyone could afford it. But I mean, I think there's ways that, that it could be really beneficial. And so I just don't understand, but I think, well, I think I do. I think that part of it is that judge Hannon and people like him are aligned with certain factions, not the entire Republican party. I don't want to say, but at this point, I think a lot of people have left the Republican party that don't have kind of a culture war in their 
back of their mind when they think about immigration, right? Because there's, you know, I think before the Trump years, there was a lot of people, um, George Will being one, um, who was like kind of considered to be a principled, conser- principled conservative who had a national column. But remember, during the Trump years, all those conservative publications stopped dealing with Trump. And even some people left the party, mm-hmm. some really well-known conservatives that were, I think, not wanting to be associated with racism, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, white nationalism. Right. Even even uh, like right now, Cornyn, he's he's a very conservative uh, Republican. Mm-hmm. He's pro DACA. Like he's like, no, let's get the DACA recipients taken care yeah. of before we move over, like we move with something else along with border security, but it's like, okay, I mean, the, yes, you do have, you know, the caravans are going on, but from the caravans, it's just, an, that's a completely separate situation than from the people that are here. And, yeah. And there's, my opinion, there's times that it's wasted. There's, cause obviously for me, Mexico doesn't want me back because they would have provided programs for us to go back and like, Hey, we're going to offer you something similar to what you had there, wages, programs, you know, where you can build a career, you can do a business. And then Mexico or, you know, other countries didn't want us back because they never rose a hand for us. So the only thing that we had was just advocates and, and attorneys like you that are representing us, fighting for us to to stay here. Yeah. So that, that for me, that's what, that's what I take is people are like, well, I mean, how come they don't go back to their country? I'm like, because their countries don't want them. That's, yeah. I mean, they don't raise their hand. They're like, hey, DACA recipients, come over here. We'll make sure whatever you're making, we're going to help you make it here. Right. We don't get that. So it's like, why go back to a country that doesn't want me? I mean, honestly, and to go back and relearn, re, re, like start a new life with something that it's not the same value as it is here. Like, what can we do? I mean, just wait it off another 10 years. Yeah. And it's, um, it, it just, I think that, you know, some of the reporters would ask me a lot about DACA and about the DACA people that I'd represented. Some of them would say like, Oh, well, one of them said, well, yeah, but especially in Luis's case, because he's been here since he's one and he's like this, you know, I'm like a lot of them have been here since they're one or two or three. I mean, like, you know, I don't know. It was odd because I think certain people saw him as like this unicorn. And I really knew that. I mean, obviously he's a very exceptional, you know, athlete and person in a lot of ways. I'm not trying to say there's nothing very compelling about Luis Grijalva. There's lots of things, but I think that what bothered me about some of the commentary or interviews was almost like, well, he's different. I'm like, there's a, a lot of them are. Right. I mean, exceptional. And how many would be exceptional? I think Luis is extremely tough and extremely resilient. You know, I did notice that and very positive. And, you know, I don't know if I could be that positive for that long and keep pursuing a career that's so tough, you know, athletically. I mean, I definitely can't do that kind of running. But, um, (laughs) you know, I you know, I don't know just mentally the the strain of not knowing if you're going to be able to really get anywhere because you may not be able to travel. Right. Right. And what would you say to all the dreamers out there? They're like, they feel like, like us, we're in a limbo. What can you say as an attorney and, you know, someone that represents us legally? I think keep striving and keep um, trying to get your, your case out there and try to tell as many people as you can about DACA and the need to definitely persuade members of Congress that aren't on board, you know, people that we know that live in states where there are those senators that aren't on board, right? Um, I hope we got some of their attention through Luis Grijalva's case, and maybe some of them are runners, and now we'll, we'll like, click on the articles when things about DACA come up, or maybe some are other former um, you know, Olympic, either athletes or fans or people that were athletes at maybe not even at the Olympic level, but caught on to the story. So I'm hoping that it gains some momentum. And the other thing that I've urged the administration to do is to, I think the administration could easily do this, is to give a travel permit with the renewal. Obviously, the initial applications are frozen in time. They're receiving them. You know, I just got a receipt for someone. We made a decision. He and I made a decision to go ahead and file, you know, still. I think that's the other thing. First time filers, let's file them. You know, let's if you can't afford an attorney, you don't have to come to some like me. A few people prefer it. Um, I don't charge that much for DACA, even an initial 
But if, if in your area, there's only people that charge a lot, there are nonprofits almost everywhere that you can get to. I think we should file all of them because that'll help the ACLU and the other immigrants' rights organizations push back at Hannon's decision. And I think the other thing is for every, you know, DACA success story, I think the people that are like Hannon that are kind of the dinosaurs of the past. And I mean, they have their agenda because the Republican Party, or at least what's left of it, hasn't ever been able to transform itself, I think, to appeal to immigrants and some very high ranking Republicans like Karl Rove, who's a very, you know, behind the scenes, but very shrewd strategist had said, I think, as during the Obama times, that if the Republican Party doesn't do something to appeal to immigrants, it's going to write its own death sentence. It will no longer exist. And I think that's true. But you see the pushback by people that don't want to reform the party, but want to do things like have, you know, operatives like Hannon issuing decisions to stop it, you know, because they know that of the 800,000, I'm sure that there's a few people among them that will have some views that may align with the Republican Party. But after this episode and after 10, some of them being in DACA status for 10 years and almost having it cut out from under them by mostly Republicans, probably almost everyone would be a Democrat, right? Or not aligned or not political, right? Or vote for Bernie if Bernie. <laughs> I think Bernie's done. But it's for Bernie. Everybody's yeah. So now let's get to the the um, particularly. Let's get to the case of Luis. Yeah. How did how, how uh, sorry um, how did how did uh, come up to you? How did you get that? Uh, how did you get him to contact you and start all the process with him? So he contacted me um, through uh, our mutual friends who are former clients of mine. Um, Eric um, was in the news a lot, and he's been a friend of mine for years. I actually represented his wife, who's from Mexico, and she has a very, we really bonded because she has a very diverse background. Her um, father is Haitian, uh, Eric's wife, um, from Haiti and met mother in Mexico City, who's from Mexico City area, I believe. And then they had Vanessa, um, Eric's wife. And so we all stayed friends after we had some kind of complicated issues. She has a PhD now, I believe, but there was some, you know, there's all kinds of different issues and different kinds of cases. And she had some kind of complicated stuff um, that we had to figure out. So um, we did that and we always stayed in touch and stayed friends. And they knew that I was very active in Fresno with the Dreamers, uh, even before there was DACA. I don't know if either of you know who Pedro Ramirez is. He's the was the student body president at Fresno State who was outed as undocumented in um, 2010 at the time that the DREAM Act was coming up for a vote. Oh, we went through. So people think that Luis's case was the most dramatic, but they don't know what I've been through. So I, they tried to have me disbarred for the, the Tea Party in wow. the area. They tried to have me disbarred. Um, it's the only bar complaint I've ever had filed against me, and it was filed with California. I'm admitted in New York, but my law corporation, you know, because I go sometimes all over the country, not every you know, day all over the country, but sometimes I go to other states even to try cases, uh, asylum and other. And so they tried to have me disbarred. Um, Pedro, who was my client, was getting gunshot um, calls like on his um, voicemail. He was a student body president or ASU, ASU president at Fresno State. He became president and then was outed as undocumented by someone in the university. And it hit the national news that day because the DREAM Act was coming up for vote. And the, the, the California state legislation that allowed undocumented students to attend also had just been kind of solidified around that time. Um, so there was a lot of controversy. Um, and um, he I represented him pro bono. Um, you know, it was a lot of media, but also just people were calling ICE asking that he be removed, although he was the student body president. And I said, told us that, (laughs) you know, they told him, look, you know, we don't know you're a student. We hope you can get something. Eventually we're not going to remove you just because members of the local tea party or national tea party, but the forces that got involved in that case were much bigger than just Fresno or the central Valley. I think the people that went after me, the person who filed the bar complaint with the California bar, which they basically dismissed on it arriving, they could tell it was politically motivated. Um, But there were people 
nationwide who were, I think, high level conservative activists, if that's the right term, that were trying to bring he and I down. And the, the craziest thing that I read, you guys will find this funny. So there's something called the what is it called? The National. What is it? It, it sounds like it's an immigrant rights group. The man who runs it has an Armenian name. I don't know if he's like full Armenian. Mark Krikorian, Center for Immigration Studies. It's in uh, D.C. I don't know him, but he wrote it's a very restrictionist anti-immigrant organization as far as I'm concerned. Um, and he wrote an article actually about DACA and the Dream Act, and he mentioned Pedro specifically and said it was all a political stunt and that Pedro's actually a U.S. citizen. Oh my God. I'm like, okay, so I guess I'm an actress yeah. now. I can what get my, you know, job my bio out there because I've been posing as an attorney now. Oh my for- God. That's, <laughs> that is. That's false information. Uh, yeah, yeah. Crazy then, though. I mean, so people think that the least. I'm like, oh, this was <laughs> this was actually nothing. I, no one tried to have me disbarred. You know, everyone was nice in Phoenix once we got in, and you know, like I guess maybe the the drama from before of having represented some of the people during the the harder times even. Um, made me prepared for this moment, you know, to try to help him to get to his full potential. But I, I love the DACA cases. And I have another young woman that reached out to me. She was born in Mexico and she went to Columbia University. I went to Columbia for my master's. She got a fully paid fellowship in the UK. She gave me consent to talk about her case too. She might not be able to go. Same thing. DACA parole. She applied months ago and they're refusing to expedite it. So I really think the administration, um, you know, I need to follow up with her, but I think the administration needs to do something. If people are losing Olympic, you know, hopeful status and Ivy League, you know, type fellowships abroad that are fully funded. And she's kind of in that catch 22 where she's like, I don't know if I should book the flight, but the flight's going to go up. But what if I don't get it? Mm-hmm. I talked to the program. There's not much they can do because they are coming back in person. There's no virtual right now for them in England. And I mean, it's like a, that's a once in a lifetime opportunity too to have something like that fully funded, you know? And, and uh, like Luis's case, it was, so does anybody that's know he is a DACA recipient and you were able to get him advanced parole. Can you explain a little bit more about the meaning of, of advanced parole and, and, how was he able to go and compete in the Olympics? Sure. So under the DACA program, um, when the Obama administration rolled out that program in 2012, they made available certain limited travel permits on a separate application basis. So you have to already have DACA. I think a lot of people don't know. You can't just file it simultaneously. And it's a very specific permit. Um, Some people that I talked to even about Luis's case said, Oh, well, now he's good, right? So if the, I'm like, no, 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 no. Heck no. Down there again. I mean, I think we have some contacts now that we didn't have, and he's a known quantity to them. But he literally has some races that could be in other countries, you know, that he could be qualifying for hopefully a little longer time frame, but I don't think like five months, which is standard processing time frame between the qualification and needing to depart. And so it's a very specific application process and you use the advanced parole form, which is used for other and people parole means in this context, permission. It doesn't mean anything criminal. Okay. <laughs> One of my friends who's a U.S. citizen and doesn't know a lot about immigration or she knows some things, but she didn't know a lot. She said she thought people when they see parole, oh, they always think, criminal. you know, criminal. Criminal. Yeah. Yes. it's not criminal. But you can apply only for three reasons. You can apply for a humanitarian work or educational purpose. And if it doesn't fit in one of those, you can't travel, which I think is also holding people back because mm-hmm. even though travel can be expensive and hard to work into a career, I think that in itself is enriching to a lot of people, right? Mm-hmm. And so also not to give a blanket permit to these young people is really 
also crippling, right? Forget the conferences, forget the competitions. I mean, the fact that they can't, you know, just, you know, maybe find a cheap flight to Europe and go explore a country or have maybe, you know, a lot of these universities, there's foreign students. I'm sure there's people with DACA who meet someone, a friend who invites them to Italy or, you know, or France or somewhere like that, just to go uh, spend a holiday or something. And I mean, all those doors are closed. And I think a lot of people don't know the permit process is long. It's very specific and it's very specific dates um, that generally can't be long trips. So we argued in Luis's case, we argued work since he is a professional level athlete. Uh Um, And I also argued humanitarian since the Olympics are a global humanitarian convening of the nations. Uh Um, The field office director in Phoenix, we got to have a conversation with him and he was really excited for Luis once he was aware of the case and he helped us get that permit through that that uh, last uh, Monday in July so Luis could depart. But he also said he he could probably also justify it under education since Luis was a student athlete and, you know, just wrapping up his studies um, and that that athletics were a big part of his, you know, uh-huh. path in the educational process. So this might be a case that fit all three, but there may be some travel purposes that could be enriching to people that wouldn't fit any of them. Mm. So like if I wanted to go, if I had DACA and my, you know, um, friend in my class at my university invites me to Italy because I want to start, you know, just hanging out, learning Italian, not necessarily participate in some big course, but, you know, which is expensive in and of itself, but maybe I just need my ticket. Then I can stay with them and their family. And this happens all the time in college. We know, you know, both, People make trips to visit each other within the United States, but also in different countries. Yeah. And, you know, that person can't really do that. I guess they can argue it's an educational purpose, but they're not enrolled in a program unless they were studying Italian before, then they might not even be approved. Right. So that's also very crippling because part of college and high school, I think should be exploring what you want to do. And we're closing the door, right. not to mention the time frame and the fact that to plan most things, you can't literally find out the same week. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say, so in Luis's uh, Grijalba's case, um, you, do you think if, uh, if the U S would have given the chance to represent the U S would have been easier instead of, of, of representing Guatemala? The, the, like the whole process? I don't think so. I think it's just a DACA parole process. I don't think it was a bias against him representing Guatemala, although I don't know what the U.S. Olympic Committee does to push things through. I think everyone that can compete, and I just became more familiar with Olympic rules, so I'm not an expert on that. Yeah. But I think that everyone, you do have to be a U.S. citizen to compete. You can't even be a permanent gotcha. resident. So they probably don't really run into things. Although I have a feeling that in U.S. Olympic history, there's probably a few star athletes who had permanent residents that they found a way to push through you know, citizenship, right? Or get them through a process faster. Um, I think that the, one of the runners who was U S was an African immigrant who was naturalized. Right. And I think there was an article about him having uh, gotten exceptional ability, like a visa um, and, and then eventually becoming a U.S. citizen. So it's odd that we're not that we shouldn't allow that and not to deny him anything, you know, I'm sure he, um, you know, has also worked very hard, but It's kind of odd that we don't allow people who ended up here because of their parents' circumstances to kind of access the opportunity in the same way for the U.S., you know? And that's that's something that for me is like, say, what if Luis would have gotten a medal, whether it's bronze, silver or gold? That's a medal that could have been for the U.S. Yeah, it it was. I mean, he got 12 plays and congrats to him. You know, some of the guys have been at this even longer, the Olympic level competition. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think Luis, the fact that he set a personal best, he's, you know, he's shaving a lot off his time. And you got to remember, too, that aren't those people all about a second apart? So, like, I think the first place was about. 12 seconds before him. Yeah, pretty But close. I mean, if he's shaving several seconds off, I think there's a lot more to come. Mm-hmm. And 
the soonest I think he could compete now, maybe 2028. But I think that's if he became, because there's also some rule. Luis actually told me this when we were waiting that day that you, if you can, if you wear a country's flag in the Olympics, you can't compete for another country, I believe, for six years. Mm-hmm. So he's probably for the foreseeable history of Guatemalan athlete, which is great. You know, yeah, yeah. I think oh, what's sure. interesting, you know, also that it brings out is that he's really proud to be Guatemalan to be Central American mm-hmm. and Latino. And I think, you know, I'm interested to see if people are really supportive of that, but he also forget the flag, but I mean, he doesn't have a lot of choice because mm-hmm. there's no other option. Right. So unless he weren't going to compete, but I do think it's also just great to see someone that came here so young you know, who's primarily, I mean, he does speak Spanish, but he's, he's much more comfortable in English. He'll be the first to say, you know, I think that still so proud of their immigrants roots. And I really identified with that a lot too, you know? Um, and I think really wanting to, to represent, you know, Guatemala and, and immigrants and DACA, you know, people are not shy away from that. Um, one of the sports reporters asked me if he thought Luis, if I thought Luis wanted to take on the whole cause of DACA and immigration. And I said, well, I don't know if he really has a choice. I mean, I, if he said, you know, Jessica, I don't want to highlight this, you know, if we're doing interviews, you can give a little bit, but I don't, you know, but he's never said that. And I think we all know that. The more, the more that's out there. I thought it was a very interesting perspective that I've never really had for myself, which is like kind of like your history doesn't always dictate, you know, what like you get to choose what causes to put on. And I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I don't always feel like I have a choice because maybe just some of the history is such an integral part of who I am. And some of that had to do with struggles and immigration and, right. and things like that, you know? And I feel like say if, if, for example, he would have been opposed to sharing his, his case, then it would have not been as publicly known as how it is now. So having that, then anyone that wanted to compete or do something, they'll be quiet. But his case in particular feels like he opened up a can of worms. And I don't think it's going to be the first case that we're going to see someone try to go to the Olympics as a DACA recipient. I think there's going to yeah. be many more because they, they know that, you know what, there's this advanced part of like uh-huh. either, either, you know, America wants me to, you know, they don't take me as a citizen for here. Like, you know, as an American citizen, I want to go compete. You're going to go yeah. compete for your country of, of, you know, or originally, like where you you were born, but it's just it's just sad because, like, say with someone for Luis, he could have easily been, I mean, could have easily been part of the U.S. team. Well, and I think that that might have to be like, let's say, so next Olympics, um, he definitely won't be able to compete for the U.S. by yeah, then, right. right? Under the rules and yeah. under just the timeframes for citizen U.S. citizen. Ship unless those are modified by Congress, which I don't think they will be in this time. But um, so if he starts to win medals, which I think is very possible, I think we're going to see people say, why isn't he? And then, you know, that actually even on his page, I had to was interesting because on his page, you know, he had tagged me in that original post when we got the thing. And this is all Louise, too. Like, I'm really bad at marketing myself. I mean, I love to do my podcast. I love to try to get out there and do media because media is something that interests me. But I'm not someone that's good at like being like, hey, let's tag this glory post. And that's all. Yeah. And he's I I really say he's a wonderful person because I think he knows that I'm like. I'll fight, you know, but I'm like shy about that stuff. Cause like, I don't know the cheesy lawyer stuff and not that the post was at all cheesy, but I would feel weird initiating something like that. So he insisted we take the picture and he started posting it, oh, but I cool. noticed that under it, there was both someone that was claiming to be my net, my nephew and <laughs> my brother and sister don't have kids. So I couldn't figure that out. But then there was also um, someone who said, well, I hate to be the person to rain on the parade, but why is he running for Guatemala? And I felt like saying exactly. I want to like you slap you. Yeah. Learn the whole process of that and you'll hear why. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. And I mean, I guess what's complicated is that there are some um, 
Mexican-Americans who are dual citizens, right, who choose to run for Mexico or compete for Mexico in their various, you know, sports. Um, So I think that confuses people. But I don't think people fully understood that he didn't even have that choice to to try to qualify for the U.S. team. And it's it's good. I I was uh, when I was I was actually I was coming back from playing soccer at night and we usually get together and we have beers <laughs> a lot of beers sometimes <laughs> and then and then i was uh one of my one of my good friends um his wife uh she's like the one that he reshared like her story and i was like man that's cool and for me like like that kind of were like like I literally like personally like I I felt like super happy like I I don't know Luis you know hopefully when they get a chance to t- have a chat with him we get a chance to have a ch- have a chat with him yeah and and it was like part of me was like we're doing something like no matter no matter how much sometimes you feel like you want to give up because you're in this limbo of ten almost ten years with this half you know permit to to work it's like man, there's something here that we're doing right. And and yeah. I'm hopeful, like for me, it brought hope because I wish there's more people that want to take that step to get with the right people that represent them like you, that want to take advantage of them and they can be able to fulfill their dream. Even if it's with a minimalist opportunity, they can go ahead and, 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 and capitalize on it. And I think one of the other things is, especially in these tough times, the hardest thing for me is when I tell someone like, let's wait, let's wait to file this because the tide has changed, you know, and then they start to distrust me. And I understand that sometimes it's easier to hear nice, you know, soothing words than to hear, you know, we shouldn't do this. This could end up very badly. We should wait. And then you're going to have to, you know, go get more stuff. Then that's, you know, that doesn't sound as pretty, but Sometimes, you know, the the lawyers that I really respect, we all will turn away cases or tell people just let's wait, you know, when the tide changes. And I think that sometimes it's easier to go to someone who will just tell you, you know, everything's going to be great. And if you hear that from a few people, then maybe that one person, you know, isn't right. But if that person has a lot of success and has gotten a lot of people through some tough things, really think about that because what's been the hardest for me was when I told people, some of the people whose other family members I had immigrated, no, we're not doing this with your husband because he's going to, you know, something's going to happen because of his, you know, removal history or something like that. And it's, you know, it's rarely criminal history. It's usually like immigration history or just something complicated and the politics at the time. And so um, one of my former clients, I had helped her immigrate her mother and she'd gone to someone who was later disciplined by the California bar. And he and when she came back to me, her husband was in Mexico. He was removed at the adjustment interview. Um, And I said, what did he say that I didn't say? Like, what did he say? And all it really was, was we could do it. Give me like, give me $10,000, you know? And I think that was about double what I had charged to help her with her mom where we got the green card, but I had said, no, we're not doing this. I don't care. You know, they had said, if it's, if it's just more complicated, you know, more money. I'm like, it's not an issue of money. There's literally no upside to this, you know? Mm -hmm. And if, you know, if, there are people, there are predators, you know, within the immigrant community, um, both attorneys and notarios. So right. it's really important to be sure that it's someone who's good. And, you know, sometimes you might not like to hear that it's not the right time. I had to have a lot of those tough conversations during the Trump years mm-hmm. and things are just starting to shift. And I'm still having some of those conversations where I'm like, not yet. I, you know, I don't think there's enough. Mm-hmm room yet for some of these tough cases to make it through let's let's not be the first in line to file a tough case before we're sure that things have have shifted fully but not everyone wants to hear that you know and i think that's the hardest i'm not going to file bs cases you know i'm i might fight some that end up you know not working out but usually if you have a good immigration attorney and you have something to argue, there's many years that the person can keep you here with different challenges, you know? Um, And the longer you're here, the longer there's chance of reform, you know, and it's really generally not, especially now in the pandemic, even the people that are eligible to consular process, there's not a lot of scheduling, you know? 
unless you have an emergency situation, we keep getting these emails from the consulates, Juarez and the others saying we're only scheduling emergency cases. So if you have an emergency case, here's where you submit the evidence of that. But otherwise, you're just, you know, waiting. And waiting is tough. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think to get with an attorney that you work well with and, you know, to to trust them. And then at some point, you you know, I always tell people, too, if you don't feel like it's a good fit anymore, because obviously I can't be everywhere at once, too. And when I was the hardest thing, too, is I had these families when I first started on my own in 2007 and they'd come in and it was me and it was my ex-husband and my intern, Laura, who's now a citizen. But she was DACA before there was DACA. She was a dreamer. And um, and so it was us. And so they were used to just kind of being able to walk in and see me. And now because the pandemic rates and everything, you know, there's all these layers. And obviously I have to I'm going to be filing appeals to stop removals and flying to Luis. I can't be on the phone with everyone at once. So I think that's also hard because particularly with some of the clients where I feel like it's culturally important to them to have a lot of contact. They're not email people, right? Uh They might've never touched email and scanning is something that's very foreign to them. And so that's also hard is to continue to try to grow my career and do more challenging things, but have to realize that I can't keep everyone happy in that same way, you know, that I I used to be able to when I first started. Right. So Mm -hmm. with all that amount of workload, what do you do to maintain? Yep. Well, I, I want to say I run, but now that I have an Olympic, I don't really think I run. (laughs) No, no, no. Anything you do, that's your own battle. Like, yeah, it's something like running, you know, but it's not like (laughs) anyone who's really a runner, but, um, I like to go out and, you know, get fresh air and walk and jog, um, I, I like to, I'm really into like a lot of um, political news. I like to read, you know, a lot of news. Um, I'm back into reading the news because during the Trump years, I was just between the Trump years and the pandemic, I just got so depressing for a while that, right. you know, I didn't really want to look at a lot of news, but I'm getting back into that. Um, and I like listening to podcasts and I like so far working on my own, you know, doing that. Um, and I go to a lot of, um, when things are open, I, you know, I started really building my practice partly by volunteering at a lot of events too, particularly in Fresno, you know, and that and Bakersfield in those areas, um, that were affiliated with nonprofits. And then, um, you know, I did a lot of that, but now sometimes more people are actually asking me to speak at some of these things like the May day, you know, May 1st in Fresno at city hall, I got to speak and I'm speaking, um, this coming week at the California Latina Democrats chapter in Fresno, they're actually meeting in person again. So I like doing stuff like that too. It keeps me inspired and keeps spreading the message of why immigration is important to, it should be important to a lot of people, not just immigrants. Right. Oh yeah. I agree. Um, another question is like, you know, being an attorney, it's a lot, it's, uh, it's a big, um, what do you call it? It's a big, um, it's a big name to, to, Ah. to carry, I guess. Um, what do you do to stay humble or, yeah. Oh, my kid, my kids cut. I have two teenagers. Okay. So my daughter's almost 17 and my son is going to be 13 um, in, in January. So they cut me down to say every day. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's that's not hard. And then um, um, I mean, I think that honestly, I think like the people that I'm connected to, like that connected me to Louise, um, honestly, are very humble people, even though they're very, you know, intelligent and accomplished people. And I think that Louise is a very humble person. I mean, I know he has to have a lot of internal confidence and drive to achieve uh-huh. what he does. And in fact, we were talking about that when we were sitting there waiting. I said, well, I'm never really allowed a lot of doubt in my mind that we were going to achieve this because if I, if I start letting doubt into my mind, then it becomes like a maybe, and then it becomes, you know, and so I usually try to go into anything that I think is a pretty good case as overconfident. I mean, I don't want to be delusional if I find something out, like there's some big problem with a piece of evidence in an asylum case. And I realize it right before the case, because during the preparation, I don't want to be overconfident in a case that clearly there's problems with, or maybe even 
you know, there's just some evidence that they received that doesn't quite match up with what they they thought, you know, it would. But um, I try to kind of be overconfident, but I think that, um, I, you know, my parents weren't lawyers. My parents are both teachers. And I think that they um, both had kind of humble roots in their family, even though, you know, it's kind of interesting because my dad's family that was successful were not really, the immediate family weren't really most of the family in the United States, they were the family in Mexico. So even though they looked towards the family in Mexico as kind of a sign of, you know, success, my great uncle and his accomplishments, um, my parents had pretty humble beginnings and both became public school teachers in Fresno. My mom, ESL, and my dad was uh, special ed when he was, before he retired. So, you know, I don't think that I, I don't come from a family that actually like they'll cut me down to size, you know, if they even think like, it's not like, it's not like, that, you know, and in fact, I, I got a citation before Luis's case. I started doing this media course online in, um, in 2020 during the shutdown. And I got a citation about the Biden transition in Forbes, this reporter in Forbes picked up something that I had wrote and, and used it, you know, in response to something he put out there. And um, so I called my dad and I was like, dad, I got cited in Forbes and he, I mean, he's getting older. And so it's probably the hearing, but he just latched on to cited and he thought like I got a ticket or something. He's <laughs> that's like, what, that's what I was just thinking. I'm like, so yeah, I'm like, so you got a citation. Yeah. Like, so, okay. <laughs> yeah. So they're, they're not like, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny, but it's um, yeah. I think that both of my parents too, it was like kind of really important to them to stay kind of, um, connected to a lot of different people. A lot of their friends were artists and kind of, you know, hippies of different backgrounds. Um, some were Latino. One of their, one of the people that I grew up around was a really celebrated Chicano Latino poet named uh, Luis Omar Salinas. I don't know if you've ever read his stuff, but he actually won. He was from the Fresno area and was a good friend of my parents and he won prizes in Europe and, you know, everywhere for his work. Um, but they, you know, they had a lot of like artist friends, but we lived in an area that where there was like a lot of different people and a lot of immigrants, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that was like really important to both my parents. So I don't have that whole thing where a lot of people I went to law school with, you know, they were from generations of lawyers. And I think it's more kind of the unique history of particularly my dad's family that kind of led me to this path, not necessarily like years of elite <laughs> You know, years of elite education. I got, I was lucky to get an elite education, although I'm still paying for it. So, you know, you know, you got it and I'm doing some interesting things with it, but I'll be, it's an investment, you know, if you're, if you don't have a trust fund to go to some of these schools. Right. Yeah. One of our previous guests was like, Hey, me and you need to get a loan in order for you to get your education. Like that's true. Cause we don't have trust fund. We're not now I have my daughter going, so I'm hoping that, you know, maybe there's more scholarship options, you know, than when I was uh, coming up. But um, we just learned that Target and some of your listeners might be interested in this Target for all first and, and um, I full and part time employees is now funding certain college education. Oh. I think they'll pay all the tuition. So there's a Target where we live. So she's going to be applying for a job because that's a whole nother thing, right? I mean, a DACA people have to deal with DACA students have to deal with the reality of being, you know, essentially a step away from being undocumented if there's a court case that comes down on them and they have to deal with the funding things that so many of us have to deal with that aren't from elite backgrounds. Right. Yeah. Personally, I went through that situation in college and it's like, I mean, a lot of, a lot of, I mean, also I used to go out too, but it was, it was a lot of work. <laughs> oh yeah. A lot of work, but it's all and worth to figure it. Out the financial aid. I tried to help right. some of my dreamers figure out financial aid before there was DACA mm-hmm. and it was even more complicated. And I imagine in certain states, it's still very complicated because I think California state legislator has done some things and hopefully Texas too for state institutions, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I don't think everywhere has, right? I haven't followed that piece of it as much. But let's see. Let's see what happens. And yeah. Hopefully something <laughs> turns something, in our favor. Change. Yeah. 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 And well, Jessica, thank you for for this conversation. It was very good, very informational. 
Uh, a lot of the stuff that you said is encouraging. A lot of information, yes. From from your background, from you know the cases that you take, from the work that you're doing, it's it's very very good, and we're we're glad to have had this conversation, and we're actually gonna turn it into a two part episode since you know it's it has a lot a lot of it. I feel like you know we we release one one part one week and then the other part next week mm -hmm. it'll be good because sure. there's a lot of good stuff yeah. of okay great no i hope i didn't talk too much oh, no, 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 no 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 so <laughs> the thing is the thing is is um why is because like your part itself your background itself that's just a, like one episode alone because of you know the, your arm you know the armenian background and then you know the sicilian part of your mm -hmm your mom's yeah. side and how everything came about when you came to Fresno and then how you started talking about your career. Like that's just your part. Like that's, that's for us, that's like the more, I mean, besides Louis' story, but the more important thing for us was like yes. to hear about you and from everything yeah. that you did, how it transitioned to like, yes, you got an Olympian to get a, to get his advanced parole passed, but it was all because of, There was a lot of work in progress before that. Yeah, so. for sure. Definitely. Yeah. And I think a lot of things like led me to the immigration, but also to, to that kind of specifically having worked with the dreamers, but just, I don't know, just realizing maybe from my own history that people, I think what's foreign to a lot of Americans that don't have immigrant roots or something in their past that they're aware of like that is just the idea that you can come and go anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Without a lot of thought right. to it and without a lot of stress. And I think that that's not something that I ever really took for granted because I knew that there was a lot that went into that for my, my grandmother, I was really close to, and, you know, Um, yeah, my grandmother spoke five languages, including Spanish. So it was, um, it was kind of like just meant to, I think, go towards something like this. Yeah. And it may be interesting. I'll connect you guys too with that historian in Mexico. There's actually two. Um, yeah. And I think that would be interesting because they do a lot of interesting stuff. And actually my oldest cousin Armando, who's there and TJ also is involved in some of that effort to preserve the history. Um, and, um, it may be interesting for, yeah, I thought it would maybe be interesting at some point for, um, my cousin who works with me, I just find that we have such an, even though she grew up mostly in Mexico and I grew up in the U S we have such a specific family history that it's just like, she understands certain things about me, even though we didn't grow up together that are like, so interesting, you know, because our dad, their first cousins and, It's just something, I think it's just a really unique um, mix of cultural influences. And we've even talked about that and how our dads were similar, even though they grew up in different countries, but they were, you know, their parents were brother and sister. So you still have certain things. And, and the family was really, I think one thing about the Latino culture and the Armenian culture, Mexican culture and the Armenian culture is that your family, you're still really united. So if you can get to them, Like literally they would see yeah. each other a lot, even though part of the family was in Fresno and part was in Tijuana. That's what, that's what I was going to say. Like it's, it's similar. The cultures are similar because they kind of stay together. Right. And yeah. So and the family is yeah. very primary right. to your existence, which I don't, you know, I learned later um, just, you know, having different friends. And I mean, I think it's great to not have your parents calling you. <laughs> jealous of one of my roommates in college who, you know, her parents would call her once in a while, her mom, you know, her mom and dad each, but um, not that it was that infrequent, but my parents, it felt like they were calling constantly. But, um, you know, I think that's something that's really common to both, um, both cultures and, um, And it's like, you know, really interesting um, as my cousins and I kind of united later in life after our grandmother's side, because, you know, the grandmas were on the phone all the time. And when they could visit each other, they were. And then when that when they died, my great aunt in Mexico and my grandmother in Fresno, then things we, there was a period. But then Instagram, you know, and luckily it's, you know, our, we obviously we knew that some of the names and because they have many of them in Armenian last name and their pages in Spanish, it kind of <laughs> narrowed it down. <laughs> so we were able to find them and then we all kind that's of connected good. again. But yeah. yeah. That's how I found Chaparro to Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Now we play soccer together. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Well, um, Jessica, I would like to share your social media information for our listeners. And your podcast. And your podcast yes, as well. For sure. 
Definitely. And I'd love to have you guys on to talk about your histories too. Let's I wanted it. to ask questions, but then I realized this isn't my podcast. <laughs> yes. you could get an answer. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So my social media, um, I, I am attorney Jessica on uh, Facebook, Instagram. Um, and then if you're interested in emailing me about the podcast, I'd love to have pitches for different ideas, whether they're immigration or international human rights or human rights in the U S related it's I am attorney Jessica podcast at gmail.com and you can find it on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if people want to subscribe, that's great. And if they want to leave me a review, if they like any of the stuff, that's great. The Spanish episodes one through three should be launched very soon. It's taken me some time and I wanted to have the voiceover done very professionally. So it took some time to find something that was affordable, but luckily yeah. some of my family um, in Mexico, hook me up with some people that are doing a good job to be sure it's well done, you know, because I didn't want it just to be, you know, kind of, oh, you know, here's the Spanish version, but it's not exactly. So we spent quite a bit of time. And I think Spanish language podcasts are something that I hope grows because right. it's on everyone's phones. Right. I think right. a lot of people don't know, but it's not something you need a special subscription to in most cases to access. Correct. Yes. Y para los que nos escuchan, este, si tienen alguna pregunta, cualquier sí. pregunta de inmigración, aquí está la, la abogada que, que puede ayudarles. Ahí ya, ya dio su, su información de, de su social network y ahí pueden comunicarse con ella. Sí, y si tomo casos en diferentes lugares en el país, a veces es mejor encontrar a alguien en su área, pero si puedo encontrar a alguien competente en su área, sí es mejor por el tipo de caso en esos tiempos de COVID. Los viajes claro, son más sí. caros y menos, uh, menos fácil que, que hace Mucho unos trabajo. años. Mucho trabajo, sí, claro que sí. Sí, sí. sí bueno, Rosa, eh, thank you for listening to us to another episode. This is actually going to be episode 18 and 19. Mm -hmm. Wow, you guys are way ahead. <laughs> yeah, episode, the episode, the, the podcast is already, you know, thinking he's an adult or, you know, an adult. So, and then he'll be 21 and like went into like, you know, yeah. illegal, <laughs> legal to drink. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, we, so yeah. Um, once again, Jessica, thank you. Thank for, you, Jessica. For thank here. you for being here. This for is a great time. conversation. And I'm yeah, so happy to connect with you guys through Luis's case and through uh, the podcasting world. Right, right. And, you know, we wish you the best. We'll stay in touch. Yes. And sure. uh, anything you want to say, David? Nada más acuérdense, síganos también a nosotros. Estamos ahí en Instagram, Otra Por Favor. Estamos en otraportaporfavor.com también. Nos pueden encontrar ahí. Acuérdense de escucharnos, de escuchar nuestro podcast. Estamos en Spotify y en cualquier lugar donde escuchen su podcast. Ahí estamos. Este, muchas gracias por escucharnos. Jessica, thank you so much. Um, thank you. Y como dijo la abogada, Echale ganas. Echale ganas. <laughs> <laughs> chao. Ganas. All right. Chao.